Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. We've been up to various things over the weekend. Caroline, you went to see some 20th century opera, I believe. Yes. So with another New Statesman culture hat on, I was reviewing Berg's Wozzeck at the Southbank Centre, which I'm not going to bore anyone with the details of here. If you want to read about it, you can, you know, do that. The important point is that the part of the reason I wanted to review this is because a really handsome man was going to be singing in it. And then at the last minute, it turns out the handsome man was ill and couldn't do it. So I, so I had to watch a less handsome man do it. That's so annoying. Which was really sad. But he sounded really nice, so it didn't matter. That's a real shame. I spent the weekend in my hometown of Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. Shout out to Cheltenham. And it's the literature festival at Cheltenham at the moment, which is actually like surprisingly good. When I go home, I had this conversation with my mum where I was like, Mum, we were driving around. There's lots of posh people in Cheltenham, aren't there? And she was like, yes, Anna, well done, there are. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, why, if you were posh and had like loads of money, why would you come to Cheltenham? And mum was like, Anna, I know you've like grown up here, so maybe you don't see it, but like this is actually a nice place. <laughs> so like, don't be so mean about it. And while I was there for the festival, like there was quite a lot going on. Mm. And I was really like, oh, you know what? Actually, this is really quite cool. And it was quite like bustling. So that was really nice. And I went to see Ali Smith. Yay, we love Ali Smith. We love Ali Smith so much. And I got my book signed like a complete geek, which was really fun. And did she you talk great. to her? Yeah, I did. I sort of said like, oh, you write for us as a new statesman. And she was like, oh, Anna. And I was like, no, you don't know me. You wouldn't know me. <laughs> <laughs> but she was, re- she was obviously really nice. And we chatted a bit about Cheltenham and a bit about the John Berger event we went to mm. uh, a few, a few yes. weeks ago now and yeah she was great she spoke like really really well and she's really when she speaks live she you can tell that she feels this burden upon her to like actually be spontaneous and not just like deliver the same lines about the book mm. and about her process and she even talked about that pressure a little bit that was quite fun she kept being like so it's just like you know that lady over there said it's like this is this or it's like that guy's anecdote about seeing a thumbprint in a statue it's just like that so she was quite good at like bringing everyone you know to feel like they were in the moment so yeah and the rest of the weekend I just sort of had a jolly with my various family members and it didn't, was really nice didn't you see Sandy Toxvig in a car park oh yeah I did see Sandy Toxvig in a car park my mum went is this my imagination or is that Sandy Toxvig and then like Sandy Toxvig and whoever she was with her partner maybe I don't know sort of like looked at us like 
yep, hi, <laughs> we can hear you. And then I was like, mum, get out of the car park. <laughs> Gotta get my train, get out of here. But yeah, no, that was it was really a, a nice idyllic weekend. I've never been to Cheltenham, but I feel like seeing Sandy Toxwick in a car park is a very sort of Cheltenham celebrity spot. I don't know, well. really. Like, we don't really have any Cheltenham celebrities. Should I tell you something really tragic, listeners? This is like something that I wouldn't tell random people I know. So enjoy this one. The festival's been coming, you know, every year for age, for as long as I can remember being there. When I was sort of 15 even younger actually like 14 I was like obsessed with Russell Brand and he was meant to be coming and while I was at home this weekend I had to go through loads of boxes of crap my mum was like can you really like sort some of this stuff out and I found loads of my old diaries and I found my old diary entry from the day that it was announced Russell Brand was cancelling his appearance at the literature festival and it's just like a beige page like painted intentionally like a fawn colour and then like a clipping of the newspaper article oh saying he was coming and that's it and like all the entries beforehand have like little pictures of Russell Brand like being like sent so many days oh my goodness <laughs> that's so sad you you painted it beige I know it was so tragic and like I am so embarrassed by that now you know I, I don't feel quite the same way about Russell Brand these days just to clarify my position <laughs> Cheltenham full of surprises around mm. every corner no Russell Brand but other surprises are plenty if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Moving on from that highly too involved look at my life, we're going to talk a bit about Macbeth this week, aren't we? Yes, so the new film adaptation starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, which is just out in cinemas now, I feel like. it. Yeah, it was just this past weekend. Yeah, it was on Friday. It was on Friday it came out. I tweeted about this and actually got a few other people responding to me saying the same. I was really surprised how busy my showing of it 
was mm. for some reason i just had in my head you know sort of like artsy film adaptation of shakespeare sunday afternoon south london that's going to be an easy ticket right yeah. but actually there was barely any space left when i turned up and the entire cinema was full of scottish people which was a bit unnerving the scottish contingent the scottish of south contingent london. of south london was all in the clap and picture house and it was really buzzy yes i wasn't quite expecting that but the film itself i really liked it i too really liked it yeah. it's quite good that we don't have to sort of explain what it's about it was macbeth <laughs> it was it was just macbeth and whilst they did make certain modifications and obviously cut loads of the text because there's no way you could do a whole shakespeare play in an under two-hour film it's broadly the same story as you'll know from school or yeah. other films or plays versions of it you've seen all hail macbeth all hail all hail macbeth it shall be king so foul and fair a day i have not seen come you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts hail king that shall be duncan comes here tonight So I suppose that frees us up to talk more about the kind of aesthetic and yeah, the kind and of the feel style. of it. Something I really, really liked about it was the fact that they'd made it Scottish, like properly Scottish again. Yeah. It was all set like right in the Highlands in places I, I'm about to go on holiday to a place just oh, like so this. Exciting. I go every year, so I, um, it was, I'm a sucker for this kind of thing. But yeah, it felt very, very kind of period of yeah. the period in which the real king Macbeth lived it was sort of pulsing with Celtic blood wasn't it the whole yeah. way through it's really kind of like fiery and angry and like all the kind of things you would probably want from Macbeth but with a sort of like I mean I don't want to be an idiot and be like gritty Scottishness because obviously Scotland is not inherently gritty but that was sort of the the feel they were going for yeah and kind of primal and gory and as you say very celtic it was very like literally visceral like there was a lot of blood and like tears and spit and you know rain on people's faces and and sort of fog and smoke yeah it it didn't feel sanitized no in any way i Um, I agree a point that um the new statesman film critic ryan gilby made in his review of it was that whilst the costumes and the design of it are really really stunning often with a kind of historical adaptation of something you get you get great costumes, but they look too new and too fresh. Whereas these things look like they've been like sweated in and lived in in a way that yeah. they would have done for the period. And that was, I probably wouldn't have picked up on it if Ryan hadn't already pointed it out, but it just added to this overall sense that you weren't looking at something kind of sterile and produced. You were mm-hmm. looking at something really lived in. I was found myself frequently really entranced by all the fabric in it. I felt like yes. I was often looking at the fabric of their clothes. So it was very kind of like rough, like burlapy almost mm. looking fabric, but very kind of like nicely handled and stuff. So it looked really, I mean, obviously it's, it's so easy for me to sit here in 2015 and say, it looked so authentic. I have no idea, obviously. I don't know mm. what people people's clothes actually looked like in that time, but it felt, which is kind of even more important, it felt authentic. And it also fed into how you perceive the characters so like at the beginning you know when Macbeth isn't even the Thane of Cordor yet he's just wearing very plain like leather armor mm-hmm. he looks just like anyone else and then when he becomes king he he's wearing I mean not even in his coronation like just in his normal day-to-day life as the king he's wearing this amazing woven like red and gold cloak thing with brooches holding it in place and so yeah as much as I was 
like you completely dazzled by this fabric it added to your sense of him kind of yeah, rising I, uh, exactly and also i felt that there was a real move the opening of the film which i think we're gonna we'll talk about a bit mm. more in a minute it's very funereal and everyone's in stark black and then obviously you have the king's death and that's another funeral and everyone's still in these black clothes for, for the whole first bit when mm. they're sort of camping and as the film moves along, their outfits change quite a lot. So obviously you get the rise to power, you get the ceremony of um, Macbeth being crowned. Lady Macbeth's got, and all the other women have got blue eye shadow and stuff. And then there's a real shift into Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are often in their night gear, often in white. And mm. there's loads of them wearing white, which I thought was quite interesting because obviously in Macbeth, you have all that imagery about looking like the innocent flower and being the serpent underneath it. Yeah. And sort of as they get more and more like encased in their own bad deeds, they start wearing white, which I thought was quite a, an interesting sort of subversion and then also kind of spoiled white like yeah, when um, exactly both of them go on a kind of walkabout wander across the the heath at various times him to go and sort of see the witches her just because she's kind of losing her mind the kind of staining from this kind of wandering shows up all the more on your kind of like long white nighty mm-hmm. than it would if you're wearing something a lot more practical and also i think it just shows up your state of mind that you can't even get dressed properly to go outdoors and you get sort of the unsex me here speech she's surrounded by gold and in these very dark clothes and then when she has her sort of speech where she where Lady Macbeth is kind of like unravelling she's all dressed in white and you get a real sense of these big blue eyes and she seems suddenly mm. so much more vulnerable that's a really was the, like interesting the use well. of colour in the whole film yeah. is absolutely amazing so as you say the white and the blue and the gold is there all the way through but also stone tones you get yeah, and heavy black and, and heavy black and then the bit that I, I thought was the kind of crowning achievement of the whole film the, what's the famous line when something wood comes to Dunsinane Burnham wood when Burnham wood comes to Dunsinane which is part of the kind of witch's prophecy mm-hmm. that Macbeth won't fall until this wood comes to this other place and obviously that's impossible yeah and, this and normally get... it's a very vaguely i find comedic <laughs> obviously yeah, it's not well... meant to be but like all the men come to, to war like covered in sticks and bits of wood yeah in order to leaves. fulfill the prophecy yeah. whereas in this case Macduff and Malcolm set fire to the wood like they yeah. they cause a massive forest fire and it just feels that much more primal and elemental because obviously the wind is with them like demonstrating yeah, that has the, to be. the momentum is with them and it's blowing all the sparks and the debris from this fire to the castle where Macbeth is and you see him like come come out and like feel it on his face all these sparks and, and the this red glow and the everywhere. ash and the smoke and that's when and he smells it and that's when he knows like the wood has come to me and I'm gonna fall yeah um, and that was and then so the whole last battle scene happens in this kind of red fog which is obviously massively metaphorical for all yeah. the blood being shed and the confusion and stuff. But that was such an amazing use of cinema as a medium, I thought. I agree, because that's obviously something you just couldn't do on the stage. No. But it fits so well, because I remember reading G. Wilson Knight's Wheel of Fire, which is his criticism of the four main tragedies. And he talks a lot about how Macbeth is so important in terms of atmosphere and that weird kind of supernatural obviously they've got all the lines about like the dogs eating each other and stuff Mm. like that and for me to have the final battle really coming into that elemental supernatural feel as you say it just works so well and that red as well that was one of the things that struck me in the opening of the film so the very first shot I think so they often have the landscape overlaid with red in a way that you can tell that is enhanced like they just put like a big red filter over it and the beginning starts with that sort of coming up the screen so the so that if you imagine the screen divided into black and red and the black's going up yeah 
uh, or it might be the other way around, I can't remember, but it's like a curtain rising yeah. in the in the theatre, which I thought was really clever because it, it kind of gets you into that idea that, you know, this is actually a very, very theatrical but cinematic version of the yeah. theatrical. Yeah, it was so much more successful to acknowledge that element than mm. other Shakespeare film adaptations where they try for some sense of naturalism, which you just can't. I mean, that's not how the stories were written, so it just doesn't, just doesn't work. Let's talk about the main like plot changer edition, mm-hmm. which is supposed to give Lady Macbeth and, well, I think principally her, actually, a bit more of a motivation mm-hmm. than just pure ambition for what they do, is this idea of loss and lost children. You mentioned the beginning of the film. I mean, all of it is completely visually stunning, but this particularly beautiful and so, so desperately sad funeral of their child who mm-hmm. who looks to be, what, like two? Tiny. Yeah, like really little. Mm. And so the child is like laid out on a funeral it's pyre. Really and they're kind of performing the kind of last rites, like laying stones over their eyes and stuff before they set fire to it. And they all stand there wrapped in these great big black robes, mm-hmm. like watching the pyre burn. Which is obviously echoed later when other people die and the yeah. same funeral rites given to them. But you get the sense that the, just the way that the two central characters kind of cling to each other and the way they look at each other is like, that was it. That, like, the heart's Broke gone out them. of them now. Yeah. That gives a context for everything that they do after that is, well, we've we've already lost everything we had to lose. So, mm-hmm. And also Macbeth is then, in the early battle scenes, he's haunted by this kind of young man who you're never quite sure if he's real or not or whether he was real he gets killed and then he keeps appearing to him whether it is his son or not his son or someone else's son but he's haunted by this young man and you get the sense that whether it's real or not this he's very young as well isn't he He looks about 15 maybe or even younger like this is the heir he thought he would have Mm -hmm. and there's definitely this completely renewed emphasis on children and it does really make you think back to the original play and how much actually it is about inheritance Mm. and children well I think for everyone the saddest bit in Macbeth is when you realize that Macduff's wife and children have been murdered yeah um um, which they actually visually show in this film often it's it's an off stage thing that you just hear about so that you really hear about it with Macduff Mm. but their decision to show it I think makes the scene relate back to Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's own child's death because as you say they've got this terrible funeral scene and the child is cremated and so you see them light a kind of wood thing Mm. that the baby's on on fire and it feels so unnatural because you just see this tiny kid literally burning and it feels awful and then later on when um they capture Macduff's wife and his children, they burn them alive. On, they burn them at the stake. Out, yeah. At the stake. Mm. And it's so terrifying to watch. The way it made me feel was it's like, yeah, mm. it was so unnatural and so horrible that they suffered this loss that it just perverted their yeah. own natural or maternal or paternal instincts and clouded everything for them. And I think there's a real sense of bitterness in this film about the fact that other people have children and other people have the possibility to pass their power down onto their children. And Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's ambition to grab onto power seems like weirdly perverted by their own loss in that sense. Yeah, and actually that was, I thought, Marion Cotillard's finest moment mm-hmm. in the film when she's standing in right in front of the stakes where these people are going to be burned and she's looking right up at Macduff's wife and 
she's kind of weeping and I think astonished astonished and kind of surprised where their own actions have led Mm -hmm. them that was also a really brutal use of the cinematic gaze I thought because Mm -hmm. you get the pan rightwards across the landscape and you see all the people assembled to watch this and then you see Macbeth and you keep thinking they're going to stop they're going to stop we're not actually going to see them on fire but no you you do do. because if if the characters have to look at it then you have to look at it is the, the feeling and it's really playing on that idea of like, yeah, natural death, unnatural death, murder, which is perhaps mm. the most unnatural death. And it also comes back to the idea of whether they can pass their power on, because that's one of the main things that the witch's prophecy says. It's that actually Banquo's heirs will inherit mm. the throne. And they really emphasise that, don't they, with the escape of his son. Yeah. And then you see him again right at the end, like sort of take up sword and Yeah, and he is again so young. So young. He looks like he's about 10. Yeah, so that, that's really, it really brings brings that all back home to you and the, oh, another way that they do that is in the famous scene um, between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth it's not the milk of human kindness scene but later where they're arguing about whether they should continue with you know mm. all these terrible things um, the bit all about bad deeds and he in that scene takes his knife and is and really Macbeth is really poking it into Lady Macbeth's belly and sort mm. of implying that the fact that they don't have an heir is her fault or it just comes back to this you know this loss and it, it it really is one of the most prominent themes in this version. That combined with the very deliberately Scottish setting, I think is what made it a success for me because with any adaptation, whether it's stage or film or whatever of Shakespeare, there's always this pressure to kind of do something with it. You Mm. can't just do the play. You have to find something new in it. Yeah, which can be terribly gimmicky. It can be terribly gimmicky. And I also feel like I have no problem with that as an idea because I think it's, you know, the kind of thirst for innovation and creativity is what keeps these Mm -hmm. plays going round and round. And that's great. But actually, I feel like anyway, in the past few years, particularly with the kind of so-called like four great tragedies Mm -hmm. of which Macbeth is one... A lot of the productions are quite samey in the sense that they often go for a military setting, whether it's like Stalinist Russia or East Germany or Nazi Germany. Yeah, I've seen lots of Lears and Hamlets and Macbeths now that have that feeling. And I just think, this is boring. Do something else with it. Set it in space. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think one of the hardest things to do with a cinematic version of Shakespeare is keep it in its original setting and make it accessible, which they've done tremendously by just making it such an aesthetic, visual triumph. All the Mm. noises. It's very textured like Mm. you'll feel very much in it and the colors everything it's just so really really put together so consciously as an aesthetic yeah whole thing and that's what i really loved about it the only jarring bit i think is the accents yeah there are some bad accents there are some bad scottish accents and some more highlandy accents yeah but some really great performances as well i thought malcolm was excellent really really good as was professor lupin (laughs) 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 starring role for professor lupin i wanted to make an honorable mention as well to another macbeth version Mm. which i love and i think all our listeners should go and watch which although it might fall into the trap of being a bit gimmicky as Mm. we were just talking about is a 2005 BBC it was called Shakespeare Retold the series of Shakespeare adaptions they did for the TV and they were all modern language hence Shakespeare Retold and this one was set in a kitchen which sounds very low stakes but they made it very high stakes and it stars James McAvoy as Macbeth and Keely Hawes as Lady Macbeth oh yes I remember this 
there's an idea in it that someone's going to buy the kitchen and the head chef might be able to get partnership so there's lots and lots of money at stake but it's very fresh and clean aesthetic in complete contrast to the movie that we've just been talking about but they managed to update it really really well and I can I haven't seen this I was just looking it up I haven't seen this since 2005 when it aired and I can remember every scene in such detail because it was just again really visually striking so there's a scene where James McAvoy goes to his big chef's kitchen and there's all these pints of milk in there and he starts drinking the pint of milk and and it's just blood all dripping down his face because he's like having hallucinations Uh. and stuff and that's like terrifying and really brings that metaphor from the play home in your mind there's a scene where Keely Hawes is putting on her lipstick in the mirror and she like smears it all over her face and some of the updates are really clever so the three witches are binmen Mm. who come round to gather the bins and some of their prophecies are obviously updated for language reasons and one of the things they say is instead of when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane it's pigs will fly at the end one of the climaxy moments is he hears all these helicopters he can hear helicopters everywhere and then he realizes they're police helicopters and he starts manically laughing and saying pigs will fly pigs will fly and i just there are so many things about it that i thought were really clever and maybe i'm just like maybe it was one of the first shakespeare's i saw on tv so maybe that's why i loved it so much and maybe i'd watch it back and see a lot of problems with it but i would recommend people give it a go it sounds pretty i wouldn't say that sounds gimmicky i think all of that sounds around it it sounds quite sort of and this is what I, I maybe gimmicky is the wrong word. Like, I'm not against people trying things yeah. with Shakespeare. What bothers me is when they all fall into the same vein, and yeah. I just feel like I've seen like a lot of famous actors wearing big military trench coats recently doing speeches yeah it's i think it's because as well that courtliness is a bit difficult for us to access as yeah. modern audiences so much of it around surrounds like court power play um but that idea of like work based power play is something that we can relate to and military power play is something we can relate to and that's I think why as we'll talk about later a lot of Shakespeare's are turned into teen movies because high school power dynamics is something that we all understand as well but there are other places as well like last year I saw a really good revival of Richard Bean's play Toast which Mm -hmm. is set in a bread factory and whilst it ultimately it doesn't have a tragic outcome it does have the same ambition and hierarchical structures that lend men to do terrible things to each other you know yeah um so there are myriad scenarios that you can map it onto but people seem to go quite safe a lot of the time yeah well i thought this one was an absolute triumph really and actually the longer i've spent away from watching it, i only watched it last night but i feel like this morning i was more positive about it even than i was the night before yeah same and it's also one i really want to watch again because there were a few occasions where I was so kind of caught up in, oh my God, he's being stabbed to death that I feel like yeah. I didn't. Oh, I can see his stomach coming yeah. out of his body. <laughs> I feel like there's more things I could get from it once the initial shock was over. talk about a season of drama adaptations that have just been on the BBC. They're all adaptations of sort of classic 20th century novels. Uh, So the four of them that they've been are Lady Chatterley's Lover, The Go-Between, and Inspector Calls, and Cider with Rosie. So we thought the best way of doing this would be to 
for us each to watch one and then we'll kind of chat generally about the thing. So I've watched Lady Chatterley's Lover and Anna, you watched... I watched Cider with Rosie. Cider with Rosie, that's it. So they're all kind of, I feel like from the first half of the 20th century yeah, things, aren't I they? I think that's what gives them their classic status yeah. in a way. I feel like they're all things that you will have studied at least one of them at school. Definitely. Like... Inspector Calls is a real one for that. Yeah, that's like a GCSE set test. Yeah, loads lo- of people I know study that. So they're all things that have a kind of familiarity and also just to be completely cynical for a second because the BBC put these up against Downton on mm. Sunday nights they all have a kind of certain like costume drama there's a definite period feel aesthetic as mm. well which I think was a bit of a kind of given that Downton is like the one thing the BBC just cannot trump yeah this they're... is clearly their attempt to steal some of that viewership absolutely Lady Chatterley's Lover that I watched was a strangely sexless version of what is supposedly the sexiest book ever oh yeah that sounds to me like a quite a big flaw <laughs> yeah Constant, this is our new gamekeeper. Lady. I love you. I'm very tired. If it became known we were together, I'd lose more than my job. Are you afraid? First, I want to tell you about the most ridiculous thing that has ever happened to me with a book, which was, it's not a first edition, but it's a fairly early edition of Lady Chatterley's Lover, and it's a Penguin one, and it's like, you know, the orange, orange and white classic, yeah. stripe classic thing and I was reading that on a train once when I was a student and you know the guard came round to check my ticket he saw what I was reading initially I thought he was saying this is a joke he was like oh you shouldn't be reading that it's a naughty book and so I like mm-hmm. laughed and was like ah oh, we're all having jokes now and then and then he went all like <laughs> dead behind the eyes and was like no young women should not be reading you know terrible terrible oh like in endan- morally endangering stuff like that and I was like what and I was sitting at a like a table seat and there was a guy sitting opposite me like a business guy who just looked up like what are you what saying but I'm like I'm not even sure if he'd heard the content of what he'd said but just the hectoring tone made him be like why are you talking to this woman like that oh man and after a couple more no one will ever want to marry you if you read things like that is a phrase <laughs> I, I remember specifically the guard went away but then every time he passed me or for the rest of the journey he like tutted really loudly oh so that's so funny so the train conductor imposing rigid moral conduct upon you yes. conductor's got to conduct <laughs> yeah exactly he wanted to, he wanted to conduct my reading experience <laughs> that's so funny but I feel that's kind of relevant to this adaptation in the sense that if you've actually read Lady Chatterley's Lover you will know that far more obscene and sexually explicit things have been published since that have not been banned it was very much a censorship like of its time and of a perceived particular kind of morality and also because the sexiness was so bound up with class boundaries was Mm. I think part of the problem because there are much raunchier things that remained in print but that was because they were all about aristocrats doing it or whatever whereas this this was people crossing class boundaries so it was politically subversive as well as being rude even if people haven't read it or whatever it remains in the kind of culture as something naughty a banned book a banned book something that you've got to like read behind brown paper or something Mm -hmm. hence why the train guy behaved like that but this adaptation seems to me to have taken a step away from both of those things in the sense that it's not very sexy both in the sense that its sex scenes aren't sexy and also there aren't many sex scenes in it Mm -hmm. and also the kind of class element of it has just been kind of flattened out you'd think that if they didn't have one they would try extra hard Mm. to you know nail the other yeah, I was really surprised. So the whole thing about Connie Chatley is supposed to have, in the book, she's supposed to have been a kind of middle class girl who's kind of married up. Mm-hmm. And Mel is the gamekeeper who she has the 
disastrous affair with is supposed to be a gamekeeper who then in a way that i think happened to a lot of men he went and served in the first world war and while he was there he got commissioned as an officer and basically rewarded for his kind of natural talent that in a weird way the army was more of a meritocracy than actual society so some people with talent actually got promoted beyond what their class deemed they should be so he comes back from war and he goes back to being a gamekeeper but he's all dissatisfied because he's actually had a taste of what it would be like if he could actually just be rewarded for his abilities they kind of come together in their mutual dissatisfaction with their positions in the post-war society that is what dh lawrence is really writing about it's very british you know this focus on like microcosm of tiny little class movements yeah and the obsession with like hierarchies and Mm. standards but that is where the transgressions happen but in this adaptation for all that is gorgeous looking she is posh she marries someone posh and the gamekeeper is like a poor man with an accent so they've really like smushed and flattened Mm. down those like nuances yeah so that was kind of disappointing it wasn't titillating on any front whether politically or otherwise was there anything you did like about it as i say the look of it is right she i think holiday granger her name is the actress who plays lady chatley she's very beautiful and she's very kind of fresh face and naive looking which is right for the part i mean the guy who plays mellers i don't recognize him but i guess maybe he's like a famous part throbby man Mm -hmm. who knows but the guy who plays clifford chatley that i thought actually gave the best performance in the whole thing one my favorite bit of it was he has this motorized wheelchair Mm -hmm. that he sort of like charges around the grounds and woods in and that is something that is in the book that it kind of adds to this heightened sense of tension between the lovers that not only can they be surprised by her husband they can be surprised by her husband like going at speed through the woods yeah so he's got there's like a horn on it that he like honks and she keeps thinking she hears it because the time between her hearing the horn and him like finding her is really really short. short it's not like hearing someone coming upon you on foot so his disability actually gives him this like superpower of being mm-hmm. able to creep up on her but perhaps not one you'd recommend overall no no i don't think so um <laughs> was cider with rosie any better i actually did really like it i haven't read cider with rosie in a long time so there might be some bigger laurie lee fans out there who disagree with me but i think it was very true to the book memories mark you here we got here then laurie lee remembering is to relive we knew what was happening to us. We just didn't know what to do with it. Hello. What are you doing? Oh. Have you been giving that Rosie bird up the run around there? You all right there, Rosie? I remember when you two were little. Nothing doing. Path of true love. For people who don't know, Side with Rosie is an autobiographical take on a childhood in Gloucestershire, which is where I'm from. So, as I was talking about going to Cheltenham, my hometown, earlier in the episode, Side with Rosie is set in the sort of surrounding villages. So, Stroud, Painswick, Slad, these are all places very much part of my growing up. I could see that it had been filmed around there. Maybe there are some bits that weren't, but I, I think I could tell that <laughs> most of it seemed to be filmed in and around sort of Painswick and Stroud and those kind of places. Again, like as you say, that Lady Chastity's Lover was, this was really beautiful to look at. Lots of kind of sweeping shots of the Slad Valley. And so I really enjoyed that part. And the acting I thought was very good in it. And they had a great voiceover from Timothy Spall as Laurie Lee, which often quoted verbatim chunks of the book oh, over scenes, which I really liked. So that gave it a nice character. Also, there was a version, I think in the late 90s, so it must have been just around the time that Laurie Lee died. There was another sort of a- adaption for TV of A Cider with Rosie in which Laurie Lee actually did 
narrated and spoke from chunks of the book. Mm. So I'm sure Timothy Spall probably heard that and, and, and tried to do it in that style because it felt quite convincing. Lots of nice, broad Gloucestershire accents, which again, but nice and nostalgic for me. Some of them too over the top, but some of them really nice. It's like the book, it's non-chronological. The book sort of organises itself in themes around, you know, maybe first loves or school or the war. And this did that. I think surprisingly well although the end shots of this adaption are the, some of the first pages of the novel okay. they end with the war ending in um, in this adaption and Laurie Lee's book starts with the war ending and so you always sort of feel in a weird way inside with Rosie the war ending is the end of the world and it's yeah. like quite sad even though obviously it's a it's a celebratory thing it's sad for a number of reasons it's sad because they have a sort of deserter in the woods who is dating Lol as, which is his childhood nickname Laurie Lee's um, sister and and so when the war ends, he's discovered. And that's very sad because he's taken away. And also they realise that their father, who's been away in London working on the war, isn't actually going to come back once the war's ended. So that's very sad for them. So there, And also it's kind of Lol's realisation about, you know, being a soldier. Isn't this like fantastic, amazing thing? Actually, mm. lots of people lost their, obviously so many people lost their husbands and so on. So I think it did that very well, even even the sort of reordering of that kind of stuff. So you're really, you know, there's a sense the whole way through that you're pushing towards this end. And so much of it is obviously to do with like childhood innocence. And they do the whole, you know, idea of having cider with Rosie really well. In the book, that's called The First Bite of the Apple. So yeah, we all know what that means. That. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's done really well and really, really innocently and very, very sweetly in this. Like, even when the girls are very sexual, it's obviously in such a charming and and youngish sort of way that it's really sweet so yeah overall it was a, just a real nostalgia experience for me although my childhood looked nothing like that no. you know this pastoral idyll it just didn't but the places were familiar to me and some of the ways of speaking obviously aren't like how people were speaking in Cheltenham when I was growing up as you can probably tell from my accent but it just felt very authentic in a more broad sense of the word it felt very true to childhood experience mm which is lovely. A couple of shout outs as well. BB Cave, who is Jessie Caves, who is Lavender Brown in Harry Potter, mm. younger sister. She's very good in it. I don't know the name of the actor who plays the very young lol, who's terribly cute. Samantha Morton as his mm. mum is absolutely excellent. And a final shout out to Billy Howell, who is an actor who was in Channel 4's Glue recently, alongside Jessie Cave, actually. And he's my dream boy. And he was in it. <laughs> he was wonderful. He's just the absolute dream boy. So oh, that sounds a lot more successful than my one. I think it's worth giving a try. It reminded me a little bit of the adaption of Tess of the Dervilles that was on TV oh, yeah. a while ago, which I really liked and had Eddie Redmayne in. And also, I talking more about the diaries I stumbled across in my house this weekend, I found a page of my diary devoted to Angel Claire Eddie Redmayne from like 2008. So oh. I liked him before all of you, okay? Uh, <laughs> it had that kind of like vibe to it. It was really like beautiful and like mm. trying to be quite authentic but in a very intentionally rosy way so yeah. yeah i liked it a lot i would i would recommend it i think yeah okay i'll give that one a go i i can't recommend the lady chatterley sorry okay it just, it's just a bit waste of your time really especially um samantha morton as, as the mum she's really really like, I, i'm generally pro her i like yeah her. she's great i know um our boss jason really liked the go-between okay so maybe well. we should try really that so maybe we can secondhand give that as an endorsement as well okay a kind of uneven set of adaptations it sounds like but um decide for yourself yeah <laughs> And we're rolling in the hay All the cows are 
week I gave Caroline She's the Man, the wonderful classic adaptation of Twelfth Night into a high school teen movie extravaganza. Hey! Hey! What up? What, what's your name? Sebastian Hastings. Duke Orsino. Mm. Oh. Oh. This is Andrew and Toby. They live next door. Yeah, freshman dorms that away, Twiglet. Seriously, how old are you? I skipped a couple grades. <laughs> I'm brilliant. Shh. Caroline, thoughts? Well, firstly, I cannot believe you made me watch a football film. I did say, I can't, I can't believe I forgot this, but I was like, yeah, for some reason she has to be a man. I can't really remember why. Like, obviously the whole point is that she wants to get on the football I mean, team. I really, really enjoyed it. The soccer thing was sort of a bit like, what? Why is this in it? But you but, must like Bender like Beckham. Oh yeah, but again, that's like just the best movie ever. It, it doesn't, I don't think it really counts as like a football film. In the same way that this one's not really a football film, yeah, but yeah. I was surprised by the, the, the context, the, like, yeah. how much of the sort of climax of the film was what people do football yeah i really like the update it's part of that whole like 90s teen movie canon isn't yeah. it where they've taken which is very much our theme this week as you may be able to guess listeners where you take something from ye olden days and put it into a new context but especially shakespeare there were so many yeah. 90s teen shakespeare's which i also think really ties into the fact that the 90s was just an amazing period for teen movies full yeah. stop it was just like a great renaissance of like the john hughes style like there were so many great teen movies yeah so like um 10 things I hate about you is uh, Tamey of the Shrew Shrew, and I mean it's not Shakespeare but um, Clueless is Emma by Jane Austen there's also uh, an Othello called O that was I think actually not great but there are a few like it's crazy And, and so I knew that this was based on Twelfth Night and obviously the kind of main feature of Twelfth Night is the twins and the kind of gender disguise. Yeah, which they've altered a bit, haven't they? Because in Twelfth Night, Olivia is not dressing as Sebastian. She's got a different pseudonym. Viola. Viola. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're both pretending to be like a third person called Cesario. Did you notice the restaurant they go to is called Cesario? Yes. In the <laughs> same so random. Way, I love those touches in these things in the same way that like the boys boarding school she goes to in order it's to... It's called Illyria. It's called Illyria. Yeah. Which is obviously the like fictional place there but that kind of works in a way because they do have this sort of like latinate names don't they in some like elite part you know schools in america so So, kind of makes sense i liked how channing tatum plays um duke orsino where duke is just his first name because it's american yeah you can can be a first name there um (laughs) so yeah i I did really like it It had all of the kind of hallmarks of a great teen movie you know it had the primary couple and then the secondary couple it even had the bad aspects of a teen movie so it had like the token black person so it had just had all of those really familiar familiar tropes yeah um but with the added element of like squashing them into a kind of Shakespeare retelling yeah and those comedies we were just saying off the podcast because like the podcast is our lives but those those movies are so great in terms of like the Shakespeare translates really well into a teen movie because there's so much like mistaken identity and like physical comedy and elaborate misunderstandings that kind of go quite well into that setting and also there's always this sense in particularly in Shakespeare comedies that you need these undercurrents of power and momentum that you don't really have to explain but need to be there for the sakes of the plot mm-hmm. otherwise it doesn't work so mm-hmm. much to do about nothing you just have to accept the fact that Claudio and Hero are going to have to be apart for a while for whatever even if it seems improbable because otherwise the story doesn't work yeah because their resolution ties up lots of other things yeah and I feel in the high school context because of the just the like routine and the schedule and the pressures of having to go to lessons and football games being at a certain time and all this kind of stuff 
that gives you that forward momentum that you struggle to recreate I think in a kind of grown-up adaptation exactly I think what it highlights essentially as anyone who's been to like secondary school or high school (laughs) can testify is that it's a farce like the whole the whole concept of high school and like the way it's run is so bizarre that actually it works really well to take these completely unbelievable farcical storylines and put them into it also there's often a sense that like young people will be like pranking each other yeah and doing things like that that would be quite difficult to get across or like believe in an adult setting so it just works really well and she's the man i think there are uh, several points that like play well with that yeah and also just i felt the the way that you had to like slightly suspend your disbelief that well a lot actually uh, yeah, <laughs> that every, anyone believes that amanda Bynes like in a short wig could pass <laughs> as a boy and um, that's a great reveal where she takes off her like tiny fake side birds, which they've obviously <laughs> done like quite small so as to not make her look too masculine because then who would come see the movie am i right like and she takes them off and everyone's like (gasps) and it's like so (laughs) so ridiculous it reminds me actually of a a great radio sketch from the writer of cabin pressure john Fillmore, which is set in like a world war ii like research bunker and churchill comes to visit and he gets introduced to the lady boffins and he's very like "Mm, you have lady boffins and then he gets quite friendly with one of the lady boffins and then her manager comes over like lady boffin put your glasses back on and she puts her glasses on and church is like oh what is that <laughs> the whole point being that yeah. you know the absurdity of like a woman put her glasses on now she's not sexy like and she's all that laney bob <laughs> all she has is a pair of glasses and between her being beautiful and being ugly yeah exactly so, so this is like she took the side buttons on it's like oh wow she's so yeah. hot it was just really really joyful very silly i think there are some problems with it so obviously this film looking back there are some real like worrying bits so it's very heteronormative like a lot of the jokes depend on the fact that like if if it was discovered that Amanda Bynes was really a man that like what was going on would be no sorry Amanda Bynes was really a woman that it like the humor disappears because like, a lot of the jokes are like hey dude what are you yeah. doing you're being like over familiar so th- those jokes are a little bit homophobic and obviously also there's the really cisgendered like I'm gonna show my penis to prove I'm a man I'm gonna yeah. show my tits to show that I'm a girl and it's like the idea that someone's body would not match up to their either assigned or personal gender is like so horrifying and like against the rules and dreadful yeah it does feel very of its time in that sense yeah it is dated it has dated in that aspect but i think in the more general like teen themes of kind of angst and dating and that kind of stuff it stands up yeah we have to give it a bit of credit in that so channing tatum as duke a lot of the joke is that he's like not that masculine although he looks that masculine yeah. very masculine yeah. and like he's treated often as the typical high school boy and actually he like cares about people's feelings and blah 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 and that's often done quite well and not in a like haha let's all laugh at him way Channing Tatum, by the way, I think is so brilliant in it. Yeah, I love how even... Because is this pre-Step Up? It must be. It's 2006, Step Up. Maybe Step Up had already happened. But I love how there is just a point, I think it's during a football game, where he just does like a pointless backflip. Yeah. It's like at oh no point God. has it been suggested why his character would do backflips, but he just, so it's like he can't restrain himself. He has to do something really athletic. He looks like 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a point in it where Olivia is saying like, oh my God, so glad I finally found a real man. And she's like draping herself all over him, trying to make Sebastian, who's Amanda Bynes in the wig, jealous. And you're like yeah it is hilarious that you found a real man at this school because Channing Tatum's clearly about 27 and why is he at school yeah but also he's so great at like physical comedy like Mm. there's this great moment where he's like on the phone 
and he's trying to pretend that the phone call is something that it's not or like he's trying to hang up the phone like when he's in the gym and he like fumbles with the phone and like hits his head on the weightlifting thing and it's like but he's just so good at it you're like oh I like love you you're Mm. so funny and like (laughs) anyway fangirl over I was so excited that there was a film of that type that I hadn't seen yeah it was it was so lovely to watch because I've watched Clueless like a million times yeah it was so lovely to like actually experience one of those for the first time again good Um, and actually there was one point where the song is by Air. It's called Sexy Boy. Oh yeah, I love Air. That's one of my favourite albums. So that song is in both 10 Things I Hate About You and She's the Man. And I was like, yes, it is all a canon. There's also that song that goes like, I'll make you my dirty little secret. That's it. And I was really like transported back. It's really fun. Were there any like main highlights for you? Any jokes or bits that you really loved? (laughs) I really loved the like cat fight in the toilet. Yeah, that's really good. I was watching that and I was like, God, they have such mean girls heels like yes. such early noughties heels on yeah american as well i don't think anyone in the uk was wearing those shoes no. and then she comes in doesn't she the the one who's like leading the ball yes. preparations and she's like when debutantes disagree they say it with their eyes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i found that really funny yeah i also really liked the montage of amanda Bynes slash sebastian is getting really good at football and how the she's like doing chest bumps with people and they'll be like yeah. ow and then, and, and then like doing some dancing also vinnie jones i know that's so funny vinnie jones is the football coach and he's just like all right guys Let's play some bloody football. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are you here? This is so weird. But great. So that was that was that was also I I really enjoyed that. One of my absolute highlights of this film. There's sort of a, a kind of not even subplot, but a vague suggestion that she's adapting a lot more masculine mannerisms as the film goes on. When mm. she when she's like even dressing as herself and like being a woman. And there's a bit where she's like at one of the Davy Tom Ball rehearsal things, and she's like eating a chicken leg like really really like disgustingly. And then this, uh, this woman is like Viola, remember chew as if you have a secret. And she's <laughs> like instead of like chewing politely she like carries on chewing the way she is but she does like suspicious eyes <laughs> she's like looking around the room <laughs> and it honestly makes me laugh so much watching that i was like the way that you think you should behave when you have a secret really like shows up all your why you've made so many mistakes so far in this film like yes. you don't seem to understand that like doing suspicious eyes does not make you look less suspicious <laughs> for all its flaws i really love it i yes. think it's like a really joyful film i had the same feelings about it as i have about 10 things i hate about you which is that that film is problematic Mm, in so many ways in so many ways looking back at it now that said you know if I'm ill or if it's raining or whatever I will always put a film like that on just because it will always make me feel happy and She's the Man definitely falls into that so for next week we're gonna do something totally different I'm gonna recommend you a book which is from like the first half of the 20th century it's by Sylvia Townsend Warner it's called Lolly Willows I know her name what would I have known Um, by her I'm sure she was generally a kind of journalist and writer, sort of like early suffragette type person. Yeah. Did um, she write for the New Statesman ever? I think she may have done. I think actually. that's maybe why I know her name. Um, yeah, she she was definitely around at that time. Geekula, I first knew of her as she was one of the editors of the uh, the first Oxford Tudor music anthology. Oh. So yeah, <laughs> no, obviously a big figure in my education. Um, yeah. So Lolly Willows is a little book, and it's it's just the story of a woman called Lolly Willows and about her growing up in the country and the kind of rooted ruralness of her life and then everything changes when her father dies and she has to move to London to live with her brother and then after you know decades of life as a kind of poor relation in this family she's actually you know what screw it I'm moving back to the country and I'm going to do what I want that's all it's about but there's just a real like vibe about it that I think you're going to like oh I'm really excited to read it thanks so much
Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. All the details about how to get in touch with us are on newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you've enjoyed it, we'd really love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Then it's much easier for new people to find us. Thanks so much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.